Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. You know, if there was just four chapters in the book of Hebrews, this would be a really worthy chapter to conclude the book because it says so much of what I believe the author is trying to communicate and get across. Just to remember the um, real idea behind this is that these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, had started off so well uh, in the faith, but they'd also brought with them a lot of baggage, uh, a lot of tradition, a lot of things that they'd held dear. And now they're being challenged to leave those things behind because the danger is, and we've seen this warning, two warnings now given to us. Uh, the first danger is that of drifting uh, and the, the things of, of this world, tradition, and other things can pull us away from, from the Lord, not out of a sense of disobedience as such, but just simply because they, they seem so important to us and they pull us away. Um, we've, we've seen that warning at the beginning of chapter 2. The idea of, of a boat not having an anchor and the way it could just drift away. And we have to have an anchor. And then the second warning uh, that we've seen uh, in chapter 3 is that warning of disobedience. Uh, and really we, we, we talked about that as being just simply a lack of trust. Uh, and that's going to be built upon as we go into this chapter. We don't tend to think of disobedience in that context so often. Disobedience to us is, is doing something naughty. Um, but this is not what, what God is trying to communicate through this. Disobedience is not trusting him. It, it's different than it is in a sense for the world. The world, has, you know, but, but we are as believers called primarily to trust our great God and Savior. And that's where we're going to pick up in a minute. So let's just bow our hearts first, commit the study to him, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the text. So, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, for your word. We thank you that this morning we can be here to grow together. Father, we pray you speak to us, Lord, through these things. Uh, Father, there's so much in this chapter we're going to look at this morning about entering into your rest. Oh, and Lord, so many of us know what it's like to strive for things. We know what it's like to struggle for things. Um, but Lord, you've called us into a relationship with you where your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Uh, and Father, you want us just to walk with you in that simplicity and Lord, with that peace that passes understanding, with that hope, with that confidence, with that joy in our hearts. And so, Father, help us to understand how these things can be attained, how we can live the Christian life in a way that is above circumstances, above the problems, that we are truly, in our own hearts and minds, going to understand that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we commit this time to you now. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to do what I've done the last few weeks, which is to read through um, in this uh, translation. It's kind of a paraphrase in a sense, but a translation from, uh, it's referred to as the Jewish New Testament. Um, but I think it's just helpful just to clarify. So just follow it through in your Bibles. You'll get your own, your, the wording in the text that you've got. Uh, and then we're going to go back and we'll look at it together. So chapter 4 of Hebrews, read this. Therefore, let us be terrified of the possibility that even though the promise of entering his rest remains, any one of you might be judged to have fallen short of it. For good news has also been proclaimed to us, just as it was to them. That's referring to the children of Israel. But the message they heard didn't do them any good, because those who heard it did not combine it with trust. For it is we who have trusted who enter the rest. It is just as he said, and in my anger I swore that they would not enter my rest. He swore this even though his works have been in existence since the foundation of the universe. 
For there is a place where it said concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And once more, our present text says, they will not enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter it, and those who received the good news earlier did not enter, he again fixes a, a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the text already given, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Yehoshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later of another day. So there remains a Shabbat keeping for God's people. For the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his. Therefore let us do our best to enter that rest. So that no one will fall short because of the same kind of disobedience. See, the word of God is alive. It is at work, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts right through to where soul meets spirit and joints meet marrow. And it is quick to judge the inner reflections and attitudes of the heart. Before God, nothing created is hidden. And all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. Therefore, since we have a great Kohen Gadol as the high priest, who has passed through the highest heaven, Yeshua, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we acknowledge as true. For we do not have a Kohen Gadel, unable to, to empathize with our weakness, since in every respect he was tempted just as we are, the only difference being that he did not sin. Therefore let us confidently approach the throne from which God gives grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So that's the paraphrase of the text. Let's just go through this because we, we've been building on this idea last time, looking at the children of Israel, the wilderness and the wanderings, uh, the way that they had seen so many incredible miracles. God had done some great things uh, before their eyes. And yet they get to Kadesh Barnea. These 12 go into the promised land. They look around and 10 of them come back and go, you know what, we can't do this. They're too big. Now, we're just like grasshoppers. You know, they have this, this real problem of, of looking at themselves through their own eyes, not looking at themselves through God's eyes, not looking at what God could accomplish through them. And so as a result, they spread, spread kind of fear and panic through the camp, and this, this generation then are condemned to spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness, even though they were just a couple of weeks from entering into the Promised Land. For 38 years they wander until that entire generation, all those over 20 years old, die out. And it was such a tragedy because they'd been delivered from Egypt. They'd been saved, as it were. They'd been set free. They were no longer in bondage and slavery. God was providing for them. All the food was provided. Their clothes were, weren't wearing out. But all the water they needed was provided. God was going before them in the, that pillar of, of fire by day, and the, sorry, the cloud by day, the, the fire by night. The tabernacle had been established. The, the sacrificial system had been established. They had such a great opportunity to draw near to God, and yet, having seen all of those things, they still had unbelief in their hearts. They still didn't trust God. And so that whole generation fails to enter in. And that's kind of where we, we conclude the previous chapter, because they just didn't believe. You see, again, their, their mindset seemingly was upon their own ability what they could do, what they could accomplish, or whether they were deserving or whatever else. And we'll look at that in relation to ourselves in a while. And so we go into verse 1 of chapter 4. 
falling straight on. It says, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So it's saying, you know, look at them, look at their situation. But it's saying, you know, because of that, let us therefore, therefore, when you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And it's simply saying, because of what they experienced and the fact that they failed, well, you know, we've got to be so careful. Because the same situation can end up happening to us. Yeah, we all think we're above deception, don't we? We all think we won't be deceived. We wouldn't be in a, a position, if we were there, if we were in the wilderness, we'd have been fine. We'd have trusted God. We'd have been with Joshua and Caleb, wouldn't we? We'd have all gone in. We'd have had no trouble. But truthfully, we know in our hearts that's not the reality. You know, it, it's lovely how when we read scripture, we like to identify with the heroes, don't we? The Bible characters that did really well. But actually, more often than not, it's the ones who didn't do so well that we should be identifying with and looking at their failings and using those things as examples, exactly what Paul tells us in Romans and elsewhere. The things that were in the foretime were written for our learning. So this word here, fear. Let us therefore fear. I like it. It's the, it's the word in, in the Greek, basically the same word from which we get phobia. It's phobio is the Greek word. But it's the way we get a phobia. If anybody's ever had a phobia, you don't have to be a show of hands, but if anybody's had a, a phobia, it's not necessarily a rational thing. But boy, does it have a big impact on your life. You know, you, you can't do things that you maybe would like to do because of that phobia. It just, it just becomes consuming. There's a, just looking at the, 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 this word and the ways it's used and translated, the, the idea here, looking at Strong's and Corns, it says, um, uh, put to flight by terrifying. That's the idea of this word. That somebody is you know, put in a position where you literally flee because you're absolutely terrified. And in a sense, it's a kind of a strange word to use in this context. But the more you think about it, the more you understand why the writer used this word. It is, let us therefore be absolutely terrified of the possibility of not entering his rest. That, that's what's being said. That, that's the heart we should have regarding this. That God has provided something for us as believers. When we've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we have been born again, when we've been, in a sense, in, in type, we've been delivered from Egypt, from the slavery and bondage of Egypt, and we've been led by him across the Red Sea and so on, in our own lives, and it says, let us therefore be absolutely terrified of the possibility of not entering all that he has for us. And yet I would suggest that for so many Christians, they would actually be numbered amongst those who died in the wilderness. So many Christians don't enter into that rest. And we're going to talk about what that rest is in a moment. But the, 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 the initial thing we see is that God has provided something that is so incredible, so wonderful, that we should be absolutely terrified of the possibility of blowing it and not receiving it. We've, every week we've made the point that this isn't talking about salvation. This is, the whole of this book is written to believers, people who were saved. And you can't add to your salvation. This isn't talking about works to get right with God. This is talking about living in a way that allows us to receive the blessings that God has for us. And we said last time that sometimes we get to that position and that situation where we don't receive the blessings because we don't think we deserve them. We think, well, why would God give me that kind of blessing? Why would God do that? But God delights in blessing us. God delights in fulfilling his promises. 
And we should never be surprised that God wants to do incredible things in us and with us and through us. One of the notes I had from last week, when it speaks about the deceitfulness of sin, and again, that idea for sin is the idea of withdrawing from God. It speaks previously about departing from the living God. It's just drawing back from. It's kind of not allowing yourself to, to throw yourself completely into God in every possible way to really seek first the kingdom of God and abandon everything else. And you know, the idea of not believing what God says is yours. That, that's one of the problems we have. And this is what the writer is trying to address here, that so often we don't truly believe that God has so much more for us. And so often, and unfortunately through errors that have been introduced in the church through the whole prosperity gospel and all these kind of things, sometimes we, we have a mindset where we think we're not allowed to, to kind of seek after blessing because that might be sinful, it might be wrong, you know. But this is telling us that God has a rest for us, a place that should be just so incredible and that's what he wants for us. That's what he wants to give us. So, again, let's be terrified at the thought of not entering into this rest. We seem to come short. Luke fifteen fourteen. and maybe we'll refer to this again in a while, but it's the account of the, of the prodigal son. And this actually is a great example in the context of what we're talking about. And verse 14 says, speaking of the prodigal son, and when he had spent all there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Okay, It's exactly the same word that we have translated here in Hebrews uh, for uh, lest you seem to come short of it. That word that's translated short of it is a word in the Greek hysterio. Uh, and it, it, it means to come short of, but it, it's great the way that, that Luke uh, uses it in this context, the verse there, um, that he began to be in want. Uh, and the idea... Again, that we should be fearful of, of not taking all the, uh, that God has promised us, lest uh, any of you should seem to come short of it, that we should be in a position, a position where we are in want or lacking what our Father wanted us to have. I mean, just think of the prodigal son. Think of how the father of the prodigal son would have been so grieved in his heart to see his son in that position, so destitute, having lost everything. And in a sense, you see part of the father's heart in that of watching his children not entering into the rest that he's provided for us. And the big issue, again, is simply because of trust. God is calling us to trust him more. And, and you know what? We, uh, it's been said to me so many times that you know the Lord causes you to live through the book that you're reading at the time in Scripture to help you understand the, the situation. And I think with the things that have been going on, certainly this past week as a fellowship, you know, with the news we've had, with the situations in our families and so on that we've been hearing about, God is calling us to trust him. To really, really step out and say, oh, you know what, maybe I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust. So let's carry on, verse 2, we're, we're doing well. Um, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. So again, the gospel, specifically the good news, that's the idea. Um, and it's saying that the gospel, or the good news, was preached to the children of Israel. That this idea of being delivered from slavery, from bondage, entering into this promise that God has, the good news was told to them. But he says it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it. 
Now, we could go off on a tangent, which we haven't got time, or we won't do this morning, but you know, just put a note there if you want to. Matthew 13, think about the parables, particularly the first parable we have, which speaks about the different types of soil, and every response is dependent upon people's reaction to the word of God. Those that receive the word, and that, that word goes down and takes root, well, that's a wonderful, wonderful result. But for those whose hearts the word is snatched out of because of the troubles and the cares of this life or whatever, you know, if the root word doesn't take root in your life, then it's not going to produce that faith. We're going to comment again, I'm sure, before the end of the study from Romans, I believe it's 14, verse 17. Um, but we're just to be told there that, uh, sorry, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know, it says that, that, that it didn't produce in them what it should have done because it wasn't mixed with faith. So this good news they had, this promise, just just fell on stony soil effectively because it wasn't mixed with faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing. Where does that come from? By the word of God. Verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into that rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works... Just put me pause there. It's saying... Um, for we which have believed do enter into that rest. What he's saying is, we are now that generation, that people who have the privilege and the opportunity of entering into that rest. Now the question is still remaining, will you as an individual enter into that rest? Will you enter into all that God has for you? He's saying they, they didn't, and he's going to talk about three different types of rest in a second. And so he's saying that we have got the kind of the final revelation, the final expression of this rest of which the others were just models and types and pictures. It says, for we which have believed do enter into that rest. It's up to us. We have that, that opportunity now to truly enter in this rest. As he said, as I've sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest... Although the works, now this is, this is why, one of the reasons I think this is Paul writing this. Because Paul, in all his letters, interrupts himself mid-sentence, and then mid-kind of interruption, he interrupts himself again, and then eventually gets back onto the, the track. This is what he's doing here. So again, let me just read verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, and then there's a little parenthesis here, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's saying, kind of, you know, God completed everything right from the beginning of creation. He says, for oh, he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day of this wise, and God did rest the seventh day for all his works. So the first rest that's going to be spoken of is the Sabbath rest, the, the seventh day rest. And of course, it's a, it's a good thing to rest at least one day a week. You know, from our bodies, from a physiological perspective, if we carry on working, if we don't have a break, if our bodies don't have that chance to recuperate, it's not a good thing. I have no specific reference I can give you, but I've heard many a time, and you probably have heard the same things, that actually we, we need to rest one to every seven days at least. If we don't, it, it's, it's not good for our system. So the Sabbath rest was given for man. And this is one of the, the rests that's mentioned. But that's just a type, that's just a model. And seeing, therefore, it remains, verse 6, that some must enter therein. So the idea is that, you know, this, this rest is being spoken of, looking forward to this ultimate rest which we have the privilege of entering into. The fact that some didn't enter in shows that actually 
But there's still this opportunity, there's still looking forward to something that was yet to come. This is what's going to be explained. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter in, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. And this is again, he limited a certain day saying in David, today, after so long a time, as he said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Okay, now let's just pause there. Okay, it says there, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be, notice that word again, partakers. That's the word that we've already seen in Hebrews. Partakers of the divine nature. That idea of being partners. We've been given these exceedingly great and precious promises that we can be partners with Christ, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Okay, so again... This word was preached to the Jews. They had it as part of the law. It was part of the Sabbath. Of course, it's then amplified with this idea of entering into Canaan. But even then, it's amplified that, that David, is reiterated to David this idea of entering into the rest. So it's still saying that it, it wasn't complete. It wasn't just about the Sabbath. It wasn't just about entering into Canaan. There's something bigger. There's something greater that God was working towards. And in verse 8, it carries on and says, for if Jesus, and actually the, the idea is, is Yeshua, which is Joshua, the name Jesus is just a Greek for, form of the Hebrew, Yehoshua, uh, the, uh, the Savior. Okay? And it's, so it's, it's if Joshua, is who it means, had given them rest, then would he, not after God wouldn't afterwards have spoken of another day. But it's saying that God, through David, even after the time of Joshua, still spoke of a time of rest to come. And verse 9 says, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So God gives us this model of the Sabbath, this idea of resting, which is important for us. And this idea of Canaan, which obviously was important for the Jews. But they didn't enter in, they didn't fully appreciate and take hold of these things. But they were just models looking forward to this ultimate rest. Verse 10, for he that is entered into his rest, sorry, for he that is entered into his rest, he also had ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, in one sense, there's the idea of creation here, that God rested on the seventh day. Of course, that's a model that we have. God didn't need to rest. God wasn't weary. God wasn't tired. God doesn't get affected by those things. But there's another element here, I think. It speaks of, again, let me just read verse 10. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. It speaks of us coming to a place where we cease from our works in the same way that God ceased from his. Now, just think of, of Jesus. Think of what he accomplished at Calvary. Jesus' mission, his purpose, was to come to do the will of his Father. The works that he did, ultimately, all pointed, they're all testimony to his heavenly Father and to the will of the Father that he would go to Calvary and die for our sins. After Jesus had died, his work was completed. Now, in one sense, there's still things that the Lord will do, of course, that, that when he returns at the time of the second coming, there's a lot of governmental issues that he's going to sort out. He's going to separate the, the sheep and the goats. The context in Matthew speaks of the nations that have blessed Israel and the nations that have not blessed Israel. God is going to sort this world out and we have the whole millennial reign of Christ where this world will be put under the authority of Jesus and he'll rule and reign. But ultimately the work 
of Jesus was completed at Calvary when he was willing to lay down his life. And there's a great model in that that's so applicable here. Because you won't enter into this rest all the time you keep striving. All the time you keep struggling, trying to be right with God and so on. You see, the interesting thing is that, in fact, let me just uh, just carry on. Verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Again, it takes us back to these children of Israel in the wilderness. They didn't enter in because of this lack of trust in God. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the reason they didn't enter the land wasn't because their prayer life wasn't good enough. It wasn't because they weren't studying enough. It wasn't because they weren't worthy. It wasn't because they built this golden calf and worshipped false gods. It wasn't because of other sins. It wasn't because they'd lusted after the, the, the meat of the wilderness and so on. It wasn't because they'd hankered after the things of Egypt. You know, you and I, there would be great reasons to say, if you were, if you were God or I was God for a second, preposterous thought, but just, you know, for a second you think, you know, actually, you know, because of all these things you've done, Israel, you cannot enter the promised land. But that's not the reason that God says they don't enter. The reason they don't get to enter is simply because they don't trust that God's going to provide for them. They don't trust that God is going to give them the victory. And that's a great affront to a God who has given us his word. A God who has given us his promises. Look, I'm not saying that those other things aren't important. Of course, idolatry is wrong and and lust is wrong and all those other things, they're wrong and we know they are. And the Spirit of the living God will convict us of those things in our lives as and when they needed to be addressed. But unbelief is a much bigger issue as far as God is concerned because it stops us entering into the blessing that God has for us. You've only got to do a little study through Psalms. Years ago at Portsmouth here, before I came down as pastor, when Ron was still here, I had the opportunity to come down and over five sessions I talked through um, looking in the book of Psalms at all the blessings that it speaks of through the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man and so on. And there's lots of scriptures that speak about the blessings that we can take hold of. They are conditional blessings. They speak about the way we live our lives. And they, in a sense, all dovetail into this perfectly that God wants to bless us. No question. Nothing to do, as I say, with the prosperity gospel, any of that nonsense. This is the God who created us, that loved us, that sent his own son to die for you. Wants to bless you. And he wants to bless you by not having you striving, not trying to become more righteous or more holy or beating yourself up because you don't pray enough or any of those things. God says, no, no, look, just start walking with me. Trust me. There's a great example, of course, in the book of Acts when Peter's in prison. Funny kind of situation in a sense. The church are praying for him. And you remember the situation, of course, Rhoda comes to the door and they don't believe that. She sees Peter, she goes back and tells everybody, Peter's outside, they can't be outside, we're praying for him. You know, it's just kind of a comical thing, you see. And eventually they realize it really is Peter. That God had answered their prayers, even though they're all going, no, no, Peter can't be out because we're praying that God will release it. Well, he's already done it. You know, just they didn't have a lot of faith, but they had just enough faith to pray. It was like mustard seed faith. It wasn't big, 
So much so that they don't even believe it's answered initially. But they had enough faith to pray. Enough faith to realize that just before this, James had been put to death by Herod. And we're not told of what happened or anything, but it seems that the church hadn't prayed about that. There's no record of them praying about James being released from prison. So when Peter's arrested, they pray. Okay, Lord, we'll, we'll, we'll trust you with this. And the Lord comes through. Wow. Just a little bit of faith. Just enough faith to pray is all, all that's required to start with. You know, God isn't asking that you get your life absolutely perfect. He's not asking that you become a Charles Spurgeon or, you know, any great saint of the past. Think of whoever you want. He's just asking you to trust him. Just trust him with the, with the first few steps. You know, if they'd have gone into Canaan, it wouldn't have started the moment they got over the river with battles and fights and whatever. It just takes one step. I mean, when they finally did get to cross, there was a step of faith by the priests. They had to get into the Jordan, and then the river parted. That was a step of faith. They weren't fighting with anybody at that point, apart from a, a river that was kind of in full flood at that time. And the priests had to get in. They're up to their waist, and suddenly the water stops. It goes all the way back up to a place called Adam, which is obviously very significant in name. You know, we just have to take those little steps. And yeah, sure, not long into the land, they get the situation with Jericho, but they had the faith to trust. And what did they have to do to overcome Jericho? Amazing situation, isn't it? God says, march around the walls. Don't, don't say anything, just march around the walls. And you can imagine the, 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 the giants and those in Jericho looking at you thinking, what are these people doing? Yeah, the next day they go out and do the same thing again. Yeah, and they think, well, maybe they're just going to bore us to death. I don't know, you know, this is just a bizarre situation. But eventually, they get to that the last day, they're marching around, they march around seven times the last day, they blow the trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. They don't have to go and knock the walls down. They just have to trust. God had just said, look, the battle's mine. So let us, therefore, labor. The idea is be diligent. Okay, it's, it's to exert ourselves. It's to it's to try really hard. In in, in the, that translation I read, it's kind of a, an idea we don't tend to like the sound of it. Um, but it says, where was that verse? Let us therefore do our best to enter. And in a sense, we kind of don't like that terminology. But I get the, the translation there. Because saying, yeah, look, this is this is something we have got to give our best to. That may be a better way of, of expressing it. We've got to give the very best of our time, of our thoughts, of our attention to trusting God, to learning how to enter into this rest, to receive that which He has. Because again, think of the situation with Jericho; it was just an amazing victory, and so incredible that the next battle they have, uh, uh, AI, this is a small town, they think, ah, we've got this one covered, we'll only send a few. They actually get a little bit complacent. Now God wants us to, to learn to trust these things. So we then go on, uh, it just says, uh, it speaks about the unbelief again of the, the children of Israel, don't be like that. Believe God, trust God. For the word of God, and this is interesting because this is a verse we quote so frequently. 
But this is the context in which it's given. For the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's greater than anything that exists in the natural. And it will pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It divides between the body, the soul, and the spirit. That's what the word of God does. And is a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In the context of, of this verse, this, this chapter that we're looking at, this is saying that we need to trust God. We need to be believing, and the word of God is that which will enable us and help us. Again, Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The word of God will divide up in our, in our, our hearts, our minds, that which is godly, that which is of the promises of God, and that which is of the world, and the things that will cause us to doubt God. And neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him to whom we have to do. On Tuesday evening I was up in uh, Milton Keynes speaking at uh, this fellowship up there. And we were going through Ruth chapter 3. And uh, the idea that uh, Ruth gets to the threshing floor in the evening and she um, asks Boaz to put his skirt over her. It seems a strange expression to us. The idea, of course, was the skirt, the hem of the garment, symbolized authority. She was asking to come under his authority. Also, before she even goes there, Naomi says, you know, have a wash, put on something nice. Probably she didn't need to be told that. She probably was going to do it. Something I'm observing with a a young daughter that's uh, almost into teenage years. Suddenly she's becoming very conscious of, of appearance and looking nice and doing hair and doing makeup and all these kind of things. But you know, there's something very spiritual and very biblical in all of that. That actually we're better when we're clothed. And I, I, obviously we kind of think that's the case. But, but the, the, the whole scriptural principle of coverings goes back to Garden of Eden. Initially Adam and Eve were clothed with the Shekinah glory of God. And when they sinned, that left them. They recognized they were naked. It wasn't because they weren't wearing clothes. It was because that covering had gone. And so they try and find a covering for themselves. We all need that kind of covering. And it's simply saying here that you can try and find any other covering you want, but you're still going to be exposed and open to God. The only covering that's, that's sufficient, that's suitable for us as Christians is Jesus Christ. We're to be clothed with him. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's to be our clothing, our covering, our protection. Again, everything you, you can't hide anything from him whatever other covering you may try and put around your life, whatever things you have, they, they won't do the job. God sees everything. And it says, open unto him, uh, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, with whom we have to one day stand and give account, with whom we have to effectively enter into contest with. And how can any of us stand before God? So, it goes on. Seeing then... We have a great high priest. Now, we've already seen Jesus being shown to be better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses. The next chapter is going to take this a step further and deal with this whole idea of the priesthood. But this introduction here is kind of leading us into that. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What is it we profess? We profess that we're going to follow him and trust him as servant. Let's hold on to that. And it's just because 
We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows the challenges that we face. He knows the temptation not to trust. Remember the, the whole situation in the in the wilderness when Satan came and comes and tempts Jesus was well try and do it your way. I'll give you a shortcut. Don't trust God. Satan promises Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but he promises it in a kind of a shortcut way. You know, it's like, well, you really yeah, is God really going to give you that? No, no. Jesus understands exactly what it's like to be tempted not to trust. And then verse 16, what a great conclusion. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, it's another verse that we're so familiar with and we, we often use, and it's great you know, as a standalone verse, it's a great statement. But in the context, this is all about trusting God. See, the rest that we have is not the, the seventh-day Sabbath rest. It's not entering into Canaan. They were just models. They were types. The rest we have is coming into that relationship where we fully trust and we believe God, where we take him at his word, where we're prepared to step out in faith. And it's hard. But, you know, when we do, we're amazed, aren't we? Already we've seen this week testimony of how God works in miraculous ways, in things that we could never engineer or organize. I'm sure if we went around everybody and shared, we'd all be able to give examples in our own life where God has done those kind of things. But then we kind of almost revert to as it was. No, no, we're supposed to be living this life of trusting him, believing him, believing the promises in his word. Again, exceedingly great and precious promises. And once again, the word of God is that which will increase your faith. So we need to be doing our best, giving our best, studying his word, allowing it to change our thinking, as it says in Romans 12 too, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The natural mind won't necessarily want to trust or, or be inclined to trust. Or be cautious. But God says, no, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be cautious with me. Step out in faith, trust. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. It implies that grace is just overflowing from this throne, doesn't it? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's bow our hearts. Father, just thank you for this time this morning and teach us by your grace to trust you, to believe, to believe the promises that you have given. Lord, let us not be like the children of Israel. In fact, Lord, as your word says that we've seen this morning, let us be terrified at the possibility of not trusting you. And Lord, in response to that fear of not, or possibly not trusting you, then Lord, may we turn to your word that it increases our faith. As we read scripture, as we see example after example after example of people that you blessed and helped and strengthened, of people like Hannah, who prayed, that you would open her womb and grant her a child. Year after year after year, and Lord, you did. And so many others in Scripture, Lord, who cried out to you, and you heard them, and you blessed them. Lord, let us enter into that rest where we stop striving, we stop worrying, we stop being anxious for the things of this life, of this world. Anxious of our own security and our safety, that we trust you, Lord, because you are a good, good Father. We just thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts, we ask now. In Jesus' name, amen.